Sometimes it feels a little challenging to preach on one of the most famous texts because many of you know a lot about it. Some of, some of you may have uh, been less familiar with it, but you've probably at the very least heard of David and Goliath, even if you didn't grow up around Christianity or around the church. Um, but before we uh, hop into talking about this text, I want to do something that might seem a little far afield, but I think uh, by the time we're done today, it'll make a lot of sense. I want to read to you a few of the commands in Scripture that are intended to shape our daily lives, but are often very difficult for us to live out. I'm going to read just a few passages of Scripture, a few commands given to us in Scripture that, if we're honest, are really challenging. This is from Matthew 5.39. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's not an easy one for us. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's not easy to confess our sins to one another. Exodus 34, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest you shall rest. In the busy season, keep the Sabbath. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, to live out the kind of community where we stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 25, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, to commit ourselves to community faithfully. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the dis discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the last one I'll read for us this morning is from 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of those who would persecute you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read through those verses and those commands in Scripture, I find myself recognizing that what God has called us to in this life is profoundly difficult. In fact, it often feels and is impossible. We could go on and on. Those are just a few of the commands, but it's pretty understandable as to why these things seem so difficult and impossible. If you take a Sabbath during the busy season, you might not get a leg up on someone else, and your boss might look sideways at you. If you turn the other cheek, you'll be taken advantage of at some point, and that is for sure. If you suffer for righteousness' sake and only give a defense when asked with gentleness and respect, you will be misunderstood. If you parent your kids not with an iron fist or with passivity, then you won't be able to control their behavior at every turn, and you have to engage with vulnerability and things that feel out of control. If you commit yourself to a Christian community and show up consistently, you will have to open yourself up to challenge and maybe even to heartbreak. And if you love your spouse with sacrificial love, you may need to give beyond what you thought was possible. All of that is true. Then, how in the world can we live the way that God has called us to live? 
That question is the question in many ways before Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 17. When their journey as God's people has brought them to a place of facing an enemy that they cannot fathom overcoming and they are deeply afraid, dismayed, and paralyzed. The call that they have to fight off the Philistines and defeat perhaps the greatest warrior of the 11th century BC, the call to defend the honor and glory of God seems impossible. And when Saul, it says in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard the words of Goliath, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. See, what Israel desperately lacks in this passage is courage. They had no confidence that they could defeat their enemy. This passage reminds us of Joshua's command to God's people in the book of Joshua to be strong and courageous, and they are anything but that. Israel had specifically asked, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, for a king like the nations to judge them and to go out before them and to fight their battles for them. But when that king that they had asked to to fight their battles for them is dismayed and greatly afraid because of their enemy, then you are not in a great place. All of the people, all of the warriors of Israel who were trained for war, prepared for war, experienced in war, gathered in this place to battle against the Philistines, and they are all terrified. And to be fair to the Israelites, what they are up against is, in fact, pretty terrifying. Their lack of courage is totally understandable. First Samuel goes out of its way to detail just how terrifying the foe they are up against. As the battle lines are drawn on the opposite sides of the Valley of Elah, it's, there are, uh, I forget how many verses it is, 10 verses that just go on describing Goliath. <laughs> like it is unnecessary. It's a gratuitous description of Goliath in this passage. This Philistine champion who comes out into the middle of the battlefield, he measures over nine feet tall. He's wearing a coat of mail weighing what's likely over 125 pounds. And the superior metalwork and, and military technology of the Philistines is on display in his armor, down to the finely crafted bronze quad and shin guards. He has a javelin, like, uh, which is likely a curved sword worn across his shoulders, and a giant spear with a head of more than 15 pounds. And this giant, Goliath, is seemingly an impenetrable warrior who scorns Israel, saying, Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man to fight me, and if he beats me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against, uh, against your champion, then you won't be Saul's servants anymore. You will be our servants, a subjugated, humiliated nation. This horrifying warrior giant pronounces that he will defy the ranks of Israel this day. And Saul and all of Israel are shaking in their proverbial boots. And why does Samuel go into such detail about Goliath's size and fearsomeness? He is showing us the experience of the Israelites on the front lines so that we see what they see so that we see just how terrifying it is from their vantage to be opposite Goliath. The Israelites' worst nightmare is on the brink of coming true. Subjugation to their bitter bitter rivals, the Philistines, and the king who they hoped would deliver them from their enemies is just as scared as they are. And because they have no courage, God's people and God's name are a laughingstock. 
And why does Israel lack the courage to fight Goliath and do what they are supposed to do? It's in part because he's legitimately terrifying. And when they compare what they've got to what Goliath and the Philistines have got, it is no contest. They are inferior warriors with inferior technology. The reason I opened with those commands that I opened with is because I think we also often lack the courage to live out what God has called us to live out. And part of the reason that we lack the courage is because that living them out is legitimately frightening, overwhelming, seemingly downright impossible. Do you have what it takes to parent with grace? And to use discipline not just to control or punish, but to disciple in the love of God? Do you have the security and fortitude to turn the other cheek, to be misunderstood for your sexual ethics, to respond to criticism with gentleness and respect? Do you have confidence swimming up current in a culture of overwork because you were made to have Sabbath rest even in the busy season? Can you handle the reality that while relationships and real community are beautiful, they are all too breakable? Can you keep fighting sin and addiction when you have so often been defeated? Can you face death with courage knowing that it is not the final reality? The Israelites are afraid, and if you put yourself in their shoes, it's not only understandable, it might even be appropriate. And it's also understandable that you are afraid that your kids won't align with your vision. It happens all the time. It's understandable to be afraid of financial instability. You may just be a layoff or an unexpected expense away from disaster. It's understandable to be driven by fear in the workplace, knowing that at the end of the day, an impersonal metric may define your value to your company, regardless of how hard you've worked or even how hard you haven't worked. It's understandable to be afraid of a relationship and committing yourself to community because they so often break and fracture. But here's the thing. Israel's problem and Saul's problem is not just that they're afraid or that their circumstances are legitimately terrifying. Our problem is not simply that what we are called to is hard, though it is hard. It's not just that we lack the courage to do what we are called to do. It's the reason why we lack the courage to do what we are called to do. And why does Israel lack this courage? Israel's problem is replete throughout this passage if you read through it. It's replete not only through this passage, but through all of the book of Samuel. In the midst of terrifying circumstances, the problem is that Israel has placed their trust in that which is not trustworthy. The problem is that they have put their trust in what is not trustworthy. The reason they're devoid of courage is because they have trusted in what isn't trustworthy. They have thought if they had the power structures of the nations, they could compete with the nations. And so they pled for a king like Saul, and it worked until it didn't. Until the Lord removed his favor from Saul, and Saul increasingly became a coward, a people pleaser, and a man who would use any means to get a leg up except, except actually trusting in the Lord. They thought as long as we have big enough and strong enough warriors and advanced enough military technology, we can succeed. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, it tells us that Saul, the king that they had chosen from his shoulders upward, was taller than any of the people. He was a big dude. He was fearsome. And Eliab, David's oldest brother, 
we were told, looked like the king material in his appearance and height and stature. He was the model of a warrior that Israel needed. And when David prepares to go into battle, Saul attempts to give him his royal armor, armor, assuming that it would be essential for him to fight Goliath. But the problem is that great warriors and great military technology and firstborn sons seem trustworthy until there is a bigger warrior, greater technology, and a more courageous king. See, the reason Israel is shaking in their boots, the reason 40 days pass by of Goliath marching to the middle of the valley of Allah and mocking Israel and their king, the reason no one is courageous enough to challenge him is not only because their circumstances are truly terrifying, but because amidst their terrifying reality, they put their trust in what is not trustworthy. They are dismayed, afraid, paralyzed. Because though it had always been true, they are confronted for the first time with the reality that what they are trusting in is not trustworthy. And what about you? In your anxious work, in your tendencies towards controlling or passive parenting, in your desire to control your image before your neighbors, in your fear of financial insecurity or aging or death, In the face of defeat and fighting sin and addiction, what do you put your trust in? Is it trustworthy? Because if it is not trustworthy, it is only a matter of time before life and perhaps even God in his kindness reveals to you that it is not. Even if if what you trusted in has worked and seems to be working now, is it really trustworthy? We are consummate pragmatists like the Israelites, looking for what works and building our lives on it, hoping against hope that savings accounts, outperforming our coworkers, keeping a short leash with our kids, or leaving them free range, taking a new supplement or starting a new workout routine, finding the right political candidate, or posturing ourselves on the right side of history will keep us from what we most fear happening but it cannot. There is not a person in this room or in this country or in this world, regardless of stated religious affiliation or lack thereof, who is not a person of faith. It's a matter of what we have put our faith in, what we are trusting in. And 1 Samuel 17 is recorded for the people of God, ancient and modern, as a gracious and stark warning that trusting in that which is not trustworthy works until it doesn't. Until a giant warrior is mocking you and your prized king is soiling himself in his tent. Until the economy turns down or your child turns on you or your yearly checkup gets complicated. If the life that God calls us to requires profound courage. But we are paralyzed by fear or stuck in ruts counter to his vision because we have trusted in what is not trustworthy. Then what is our hope? What is our hope in 1 Samuel 17? What is Israel's hope? Their hope in this passage is that David has the courage to do what Israel and Saul lack the courage to do. Israel needs someone who has the courage that they lack, who has the courage to do what he is actually called to do. And here he is, David, the youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd. To be clear, he is no scrub. 
He's fended off a lion and a bear while shepherding. But by every measurable metric, God has chosen an inferior warrior. That's why Eliab, David's oldest brother, and the experienced warrior, a man of sizable stature, when David comes down to, doubt, to, to battle, he says in verse 28, why have you come down to battle? He even accuses David of evil intent. He's essentially saying, go home, you little shepherd boy, to the pasture where you belong. Leave the battle to the warrior men like us. You don't belong here. Saul says in verse 33 to David, you are not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war since his youth. Saul says, you are young and inexperienced. You possess nothing of requisite skill to defeat a generational military might. There is no one who is more convinced of David's unfitness for the battle with Goliath than Goliath himself. When he looks at David, it says that he disdains him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And Goliath said, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods. And he said, you come to me with your staff, sling, and shepherd's pouch, your five-foot-something frame. Against a generational power, a nine-foot warrior packed with muscle, covered in bronze with a sword and a spear that you probably couldn't even pick up, in verse 44, he says, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. God has chosen in David an inferior warrior, and yet David is full of courage. When David hears Goliath's daily taunting challenge to Israel, all the men of Israel fled away when they saw him and said to David, Have you seen this man? And David simply says, So what's the reward for the one who defeats him? Who is he that he should defy the armies of the living God? When David speaks to Saul, he says this preposterous thing in verse 32. He says, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath, because your servant will fight this Philistine. David says, let no one in this nation be afraid, because your truly will, yours truly will fight Goliath. I'll fight him on your behalf. The battle you are afraid to fight, I am not afraid to fight. The battle you think that we cannot win, I will win. In verse 48, he tells us that after David gathers his stones for his sling, he doesn't go hesitantly down to the battlefield. What does it say? It says he runs headlong. He runs quickly without hesitation to face Goliath. David has what Israel and Saul do not have in the face of terrifying circumstance. In the face of what seems to be an impossible call, he has courage. And why does David have the courage that Israel lacks? On the face of it, if we're honest with ourselves, if you read through this passage, if you were to imagine like you were friends with David, on the face of it, David appears naive at best and at worst delusional. You're like, David, you are insane. <laughs> you're a fool. No one, you, you, do, you should not have the confidence and the courage that you have. If you've ever seen uh, the TV show Stranger Things, there's this one scene where this character, Lucas, is going up against one of the Demogorgons, who's this like super scary, extraterrestrial kind of beast, who's incredibly powerful. And, uh, and Lucas goes up against him and he has a slingshot. 
and you're just like, dude, come on. Like, it's ridiculous. And the reason that in Stranger, the Stranger Things scene, Lucas has the slingshot is for comedic relief. Because it is so outrageous that he could defeat a power like a Demogorgon with a slingshot. And yet, as foolish as it seems, what 1 Samuel is telling us is that David is the only one on the battlefield that is actually seeing with clear eyes. They're all seeing as man sees. And when Goliath taunts David, David responds to Goliath with these words. Verse 45. You come to me with a sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver. He will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that, it is, that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spirit, sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into my hand. And Goliath drew near, and David ran without hesitation to meet him. He drew a stone and he launched it, and it struck the Philistine in the forehead, and the stone sank into his head, and he fell face down to the ground, defeated, dead. And here's what's remarkable. It was no contest. It wasn't a long, drawn-out battle. It was swift and decisive. And it was swift and decisive in the opposite direction as everyone on both sides of the battlefield thought it was going to be. And so we have to wonder, is it possible that the things that we trust in are not only less powerful than we think they are, but that it is no contest. But they are so vastly less powerful than the God who David trusts that they are as foolish as going out to battle a giant with a slingshot. The battle of everyday life is not a contest. It's no wonder that if we keep approaching it that way that we keep losing when we trust what is not trustworthy. Even though David uses his slingshot, it is not where his trust lies. His trust lies not in a sword or a spear, but in the living God. If the battle is between Israel's might and the Philistines' might, Israel is in trouble, and so they are afraid. If the battle is between Goliath's might and David's might, they are screwed. But if the battle is between Goliath and the living God, the Philistines and the creator of the world, there is no contest. Could this be why Romans says, if God is for us, then who could be against us? Why would we trust in bank accounts and overwork and relational self-protection and the perfect parenting tactic and a perfect bill of health? They will never be a match for the troubles life will throw at us. We will always lack courage 
and be unable to be faithful to what God calls us to. David has courage because he trusts in what is trustworthy, the true and living God. His victory comes not from his cleverness or his skill, but because his hope and his trust is found in the living God, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one who made heaven and earth, the one who is weaving a covenant story of redemption from Adam to Abraham to David to Jesus until he comes again. But that's not the only reason that David has courage in this passage. And the second reason is both more challenging to us and also the best news that we could hear. David has courage to do what Israel and Saul could not do because he was the anointed one of God. We have to do business with the surprising point of the text especially for self-reliant and self-expressive people like us. While David is wily and clever, the point of this passage is clearly not that you just need to be more clever than your enemy. This is not about finding subversive ways of disrupting expectations or out-sleuthing your competition or outsmarting your sin. This is not a heroic story of the little guy triumphing over the big guy. This is not an inspirational script to defeat the giants in your life. The point is that David, who by every metric the Israelites had to decipher if they could win against Goliath, should not win and should not have confidence. Unless David is the chosen king who Israel has been awaiting. Brad preached on this a couple weeks ago from 1 Samuel chapter 16 or last week where it said that the Lord uh, said to Samuel, Arise and anoint David for it is he and Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Israel's hope is that they are woefully short on courage and short on ability. And David has the courage to do what he is called, what he is called to do on their behalf because he is God's chosen king of Israel. He has been sent to do what Israel could not do on their own. They didn't have the military might to defeat Goliath. And you and I do not have the muster to live out the calling that God has called us to live out. But God, he has sent the greater son of David to accomplish what we could not accomplish. A seeming inferior power turns the other cheek who has faced every temptation yet without sin, who has faced the ultimate enemy, death, and has defeated it by dying in weakness but rising in power. Israel wanted a king like the nations so that they could, so that they could win like the nations. But God says you'll never win that way, and you'll certainly never grow as my people that way. The way of living ultimately becomes, that way of living ultimately becomes a battle of human strength. It'll go great until you find yourself overmatched and you'll be crushed. You need a king that I will send you, who can win the battles that you cannot win. Do you want to have the courage to be faithful amidst an overwhelming calling? You must know that Jesus has done what you cannot do that he goes out before you 
and that he is working even in your feeble efforts. That when you go into the workplace that God has gone out before you, he has given you an identity apart from what you accomplish. That when you parent your children, God has gone out before you and he is the ultimate father, not only of you, but also of your children. That when you are misunderstood for what you believe in our culture and place, that your hope is not in people understanding you. Jesus was misunderstood for our sake and he sees us as we truly are and he sees us by his mercy for his righteousness and goodness, not for our failures and our shortcomings. Beloved, the good news for us this morning is that God alone is trustworthy and Jesus has done what we could never have done. And so we can know God is at work even in our shortcomings. We can parent, we can move towards community, we can take Sabbath rests in our work because the world is not as we tend to see it. The things that we face day to day are not, they're not seen by the metrics that we see them. If the reality of the world that it is a risen Jesus against the things that we face day in and day out, there is no contest. And we, by his mercy, can live with courage. Let me pray for us before we do a little bit of Q&A. Father, uh, this passage is beautiful and also profoundly challenging. Um, Father, even in preparing a sermon in any given week, I am so prone to lean on my own abilities and to feel that it is impossible to preach your word. And it is for me. But your spirit's at work. And we ask, Lord, that you would shape us by this good news to remind us that while the, the task in front of us is impossible, you have sent Jesus before us. You have done what we could never do. And you are with us. And you are trustworthy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far, I have no questions. So, unless somebody has a question they're sending an ASAP, or unless my uh, cell service is bad, then, uh, which is possible, because I still have AT&T, and everybody who lives here knows it's not a great way to go out here. Um, but the beautiful thing is that we get to move. I'm going to do this weird thing and take a giant step, but I have to acknowledge it. <laughs> The beautiful thing is that, uh, as the end of Psalm 23 says, that, that God has secured such a victory for his people that we not only don't have to live in fear, but we can feast in peace. That's a beautiful thing, and it's hard for us to believe which is exactly why we come and eat this bread and drink this wine every week. Because it is incredibly difficult for us to believe that the victory has been won. And that we go out not on our own strength, but that Jesus has gone before us. We need to taste of this bread and taste of this wine to be reminded of what is true on our behalf, that Jesus has won the victory and he has done what we could never do. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And in a like manner, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of the covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, when we eat this bread and we drink this wine, we're tasting a victory. Not because you have it together, not because you actually succeeded in following God's commands this week or pursuing his justice and his kingdom and the beauty that he has for this world and loving your neighbor this week, not because you succeeded in those things. You come and taste of this bread and wine because he succeeded at these things and because you are covered in his grace and what a gift that is. If you come this morning and you say, I don't actually want Jesus to fight my battles for me. I want to do it on my own. Then don't come take this bread and this wine doing something with your hands and your mouth that you don't do with your heart. But if you come even full of doubt and failure at doing this and you desperately, desperately want Jesus to go out before you, then come and eat. You need this. This is the reminder of God's grace for you. Let me pray for us and then we'll come together. You can come in groups of eight to ten um, and we'll take this together as we worship. Jesus, thank you that you have gone before us and though we, even like Peter, on the night of your betrayal are often cowards, afraid to even claim your name, thank you, Jesus, that you have claimed us and that you have put your claim on us by grace and grace alone. Thank you that you have not only chosen David to lead the people of Israel, but you have chosen your one and only son, Jesus, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, give us courage, not because we have it together, but because you are leading us. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with courage even as we eat and drink this meal of peace that you have made with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.